Happy Resurrection Sunday, church. In case you didn't hear, we are in Easter season still, and yes, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And I am particularly grateful uh, for the past three weeks of exulting in the triumphal entry and the passion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, did not our hearts burn within us these last three weeks, right? Uh, Pastor John reminded us of the passionate love and indignation of God revealed at the cross of Christ. And then Pastor Taylor took us on the Via Dolorosa to show us what it means to suffer and be rejected on Good Friday. And then on Easter Sunday, we shouted together that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, while all of those were great sermons, they do not hold a candle to the greatest sermon ever preached. I speak, of course, of the Sermon on the Mount. And we return this morning to our series examining this peerless sermon. Now, our time together in the Word this morning is going to be less of me preaching, per se, and more pastoral teaching and practical application. So this may be a little different than what you're used to from me. Um, and really, my approach is more because this is a well-known passage of Scripture, but it is one that is often too misunderstood and misapplied. So let us breathe a word of prayer before we dive in. Almighty God, we thank you again this morning to be gathered in your presence to celebrate our risen Lord and Savior, to gather at your footstool and to learn from you, to learn the way of your kingdom, your kingdom that was inaugurated on that first Resurrection Sunday, and your kingdom which we know will be consummated in soon and very soon. And Lord, even in this already but not yet period, let us learn to walk in your way, to walk in that inaugurated kingdom, to learn what it means to truly flourish as human beings, even as we wait for the consummation of your kingdom. Lord, speak to us now this morning. Let our hearts be convicted and let our even minds, O oh Lord, be transformed by, the, by your word as it goes forth. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Eric Bargerhoff surveys an array of popularly botched verses that is misunderstood by believers and unbelievers alike. And what tops the list? Well, it is no surprise that it is Jesus' statement in Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. One could argue, Bargerhoff says, that this is by far the most frequently misapplied verse in the entire Bible. And indeed, Jesus' prohibition against judging Matthew 7, 1 has become a mantra in our autonomy-idolizing and referee-despising culture. We even know it when we root for our favorite teams, right? Whenever the referee makes a call against us. That's a terrible call, ref, when they miss a call against the other team. Why didn't you call that, ref? You see, when others try to judge our actions, we simply remind them, judge not. 
But if I may paraphrase that great sage of the silver screen, Inigo Montoya, <laughs> I don't think that verse means what you think it means. <laughs> now, to understand Jesus' famous soundbite, it's worth considering its context. Uh, with his antidote for anxiety at the very end of chapter 6 still ringing in the crowd's ears, Jesus now turns a corner when we get to chapter 7. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Say what now? The Sermon on the Mount, as we've said before, is ultimately Emmanuel, a guide to true human flourishing. And that path is laden with judgment. Indeed, Jesus fills the sermon with various kinds of judgment that lead to flourishing. In chapter 5, Jesus doesn't throw away the basis of the audience's decision-making, which is the law and the prophets, but he rather fulfills them and then commands his followers to display their God-given righteousness by keeping and teaching the law's commands. Also in chapter 5, he explains that obedience in the kingdom goes beyond just the symptoms of law-breaking, but to the very heart and spirit of what the law teaches about attitudes towards God and others. We see this in chapter 5, 21 through 48. And then in chapter 6, verse 1 through 24, he exhorts us to give, to pray, to fast, to pursue wealth that is motivated by love for God rather than praise of people. And of course, this necessitates judging. And then, as we'll see later in chapter 7, Jesus used a comparison to make a judgment about the broad road and the narrow road. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow one leads to to flourishing. Again, judgment. And then, of course, it teaches us to judge whether a prophet is false or true by the very fruit of their life. We are fruit inspectors. We're called to judge. So what gives, JC? I mean, what do you mean by this saying, judge not? Well, let's lean into the text a little bit. See there in verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. I think part of the problem is our English word judge can mean two different things, and we often confuse them. Our English word judge can mean to condemn, that is, to condemn someone, but it can also mean to discern, to discern what is right or wrong. And it's easy for us to conflate these two meanings, especially when you approach someone and they retort with, don't judge me. And I think a lot of times what that person is saying is don't condemn me. And they're right in saying so. And this is a challenge to us because we're not called to condemn anyone else. You and I are not the ultimate judge. God alone is. I mean, we didn't create anyone ex nihilo, as it were. In fact, James, reflecting on this passage, later writes in James chapter 4, Verse 11 and 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, in that sense, we should feel challenged that we never have the right to condemn someone. But we're still called to discern. 
And it's along those lines that Jesus now pushes us further. Let's look then at what he says in verse 2. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, will be measured to you. Again, Jesus doesn't here say we shouldn't be discerning, but he does warn us that when we do so, we should be fair and merciful. How do we know that? Because he says that with the same measuring stick we're to use to evaluate others, so also will we be measured. How do we want to be measured? How do we want to be treated? Well, we want people to deal justly with us, fairly with us, but also mercifully with us, to grant us the benefit of the doubt, right? And we're going to get to the golden rule later on in this chapter, where Jesus tells us, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, right? And what Jesus says here earlier in verse 2 is the golden rule applied to rendering judgment. And the point isn't that all judgment is bad, but rather we ought to judge as we want to be judged. And so how do we want to be judged? As I said earlier, with fairness and with mercy. In other words, we want to be judged according to the law and the gospel. Right? We want to be judged according to the just law of God. Because God is the lawgiver and his law is perfect. It is just. But as we've seen these past three weeks that we stand guilty under the law. Given our manifest sinfulness, we're not able to keep the law. So we want to stand also before a merciful judge. This is the gospel, friends. It judges the whole world as guilty. The law does. And it does so perfectly. But then the cosmic judge, who himself is the source of all the law, the very lawgiver says, yet I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He says, I will die for you. I will clear your blood guilt by my blood payment. I will take your penalty and drink it to the very last drop and offer you grace. That's the standard, the law and the gospel. It is the only measure by which we are to judge. But the danger is, if I can be honest with y'all this morning, is that we often set aside God's mercy once we finish receiving it. We become all law and no gospel. We become like the unforgiving servant. We want the king to forgive our billion-dollar debt, but then turn around to demand the petty debts that are owed us, forgetting the cosmic debt that has been forgiven us. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Because this this tight-fisted, bitter, and unmerciful spirit is like a beam that is jammed in your eye. See it there in verse 3 through 5? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, with the tension that's been building so far in our text, Jesus breaks it up with a joke. It's a memorable one. It's funny. I mean, can you imagine? Can you see it now? One man has a splinter in his eye, and the other has a two-by-four. 
mean, all of us had, we've all had something irritating our eye, right? In our eye, and maybe you even ask your mom to blow it, and then she blows it, and then the spit gets in it, and it just gets worse, and it's just like, what a mess. But hopefully none of us has had a beam in our eye. And there are two implications from this analogy. First, how can anyone even see a splinter in the other person's eye without noticing a massive beam in your own? And then why does the guy with a piece of lumber sticking out of his face offer to do painstaking eye surgery on his neighbor's eye? I mean, just imagine the beam and you try to look down and he just keeps hitting it on the surgery table. That is the image Jesus strikes here. And Jesus calls this person a hypocrite. A hypocrite. The, the hypocrite condemns what he himself unrepentantly does. He, he's prideful. He's self-righteous. He's seemingly unaware. And what might hypocrisy look like today? Well, maybe it's correcting someone for cursing or telling an off-color joke, and then returning to a text thread that's basically just gossip. Maybe it's rolling your eyes at someone's prayer request or correcting someone's theology of prayer when your own prayer life is virtually non-existent. But simply, self-righteous hypocrisy is the art of always being more bothered by someone else's sin. It's pursuing a PhD in the fault of others while being content with a GED in your own. And to the degree that you're aware of and aggrieved by your own fault, you'll extend charity towards others. But to the degree you're not, you won't. And most chillingly, Jesus says that with the measure you extend charity or condemnation, the judge of heaven will also extend it to you. Mercy. And then we get to verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Because you see, that just and merciful judgment we are to use, God's law and God's gospel, it's a pearl of great price. It is unfathomably precious. It is glorious. And Jesus warns us that even if we go out in obedience to this text and bring the law to bear in convicting the sinner, and even when we pronounce the grace of God and plead with sinners to repent and believe, many will not receive it. Some folks will be like, um, nah, I'm good. Many will turn like rabid dogs and revile you. This is not some little schnoozle. I'm talking about, especially if we think about it in the context of our text, dogs weren't like little pets. No, they were ravenous and roamed around in packs and devoured things. And Jesus says those who reject the gospel are like this. Don't waste the precious pearl the incomparable glory of the gospel of our risen Savior before such people who will snarl at you and seek to devour you. Because many, as we see even in our own culture, will treat the glorious gospel of the kingdom of God as a 
mean thing, as a light thing that will trample it underfoot. And so God warns us not to pretend to be gods. Hear me now. Because even if you don't have logs in your eyes, we can't make dogs and pigs listen. We can only judge justly and love mercy and walk humbly before our God. But the question remains, how do we obey this passage? How do we judge justly and mercifully instead of hypocritically and pridefully? Because make no mistake, judgment is an inescapable concept. You will judge. You must judge. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we're to judge those inside the church. That's part of what church discipline requires. So let me, let me point out a few things. They need to be present for our judgment to be just and helpful. First, just judgment must be measured against the standard of truth. If you judge against the wrong standard, you will judge wrongly. Your feelings are not the standard. Your intuition are not the standard. Your instincts are not the standard. Your deeply held beliefs about something are not the standard. A popular trend is not the standard. What's viral right now is not the standard. What the politician says is not the standard. What your mama, your grandma will say, that is not the standard. The only standard is the very living word of God. That is the truth. That is the standard by which we measure all things against. But I submit to you that even having the correct standard isn't enough. And that's why just judgment must also be rendered against the basis of objective and established facts. In other words, even if you have the correct standard in hand, getting the facts of a matter wrong will prevent you from judging a matter rightly. Because we're not to judge by mere appearance, right? Or, or merely by what we think is true. We have to actually have reasonable evidence that a thing is true. And really, actually, this is just obeying the scriptures, is it not? If we were using the biblical standard, we will know this. For example, Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that guilt cannot be established without two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19 states that a charge against elders is not even to be entertained or received without two or three witnesses. This presumes that getting the facts right at the very least requires hearing from multiple sources and different sides. I mean, is there a piece of biblical wisdom more ignored on the internet, not to mention in our own hearts, than Proverbs 18, 17? The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Amen. The world, the, the flesh, the devil, and the internet wants us to rush to judgment when the Bible urges us to suspend judgment until we've heard from both sides. It happens all the time, especially in the church. Pastors judge church members based on hearsay. 
Church members criticize pastors without knowing the whole story. Church members slander each other based on any whiff of error. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody in here today. While it's often true that there's smoke, that, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire. But here's the thing. Arsonists also set fires. Sometimes the cloud of controversy conceals a raging inferno of wrongdoing, but sometimes the smell of smoke turns out to be crumbs in a toaster. As Christians, we need to know, and indeed we realize, that sin does deserve rebuke, and the sin against should have compassion. But we should also remember from Passion Week that believing every accusation can be just as bad as making them. And as long as there is Jesus, we have to allow that controversial and accused does not always mean troublemaker and guilty. We should use the same measure with others that we will want used with us, which means an open heart. And an open mind. Do you want people assuming the worst about you? Do, I mean, do, do you want people passing along every bad report they heard about you? What if people talked about you the way you talked about them? See, I told you this sermon wasn't going to be. <laughs> seriously, seriously, friends. I mean, think, think about. Let me, let me give you a word of action. Think about what you post on social. Think about your conversation with friends. Think about your emails and texts. Think about the speech that's pouring out of your heart. Are we doing all we can to guard and advance the good name of our neighbors, of our fellow image bearers? Are we believing the worst? Are we eager to pass out failure? Are we happy to pile on, especially when the piling on is popular? I mean, if the mere assertion of wrongdoing can ruin someone's life, if that's the moral universe we want to sustain, one where guilt is presumed and innocence is only declared after it's too late, then you and I are only a whisper away from seeing it all go down the drain. Lord, have mercy. Instead, beloved, I urge you, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Establish the facts of a situation, especially by listening to all the parties involved before jumping to judgment. There's also the matter of an appropriate party. Just judgment is given by the appropriate party. What do I mean by that? There's a matter of jurisdiction when it comes to judgment. And sorry if I'm, I sound like a lawyer. That's, <laughs> I kind of am. Um, and, and I've applied some of that in, in analyzing this text. Right? There's a matter of jurisdiction. We, we ought not appoint ourselves to be like a sort of patrolling moral police. We're not the committee for the promotion of virtue and the prevention of vice. That's the... Uh, more police in Saudi Arabia. It, it, in other words, it's like saying, I will correct my own child, but not necessarily all the children at Fun Station. 
It means I don't have the same responsibility to the members of St. Peter's or Four Oaks or First Baptist as I do to members of this church. That's not to say I have no responsibility. I mean, if I come in contact with a Christian that is an error or sin, it's not just, oh, well, that's not my problem. But jurisdiction still matters. It is to say that do I take it upon myself to do all the correcting or do I engage that person's pastor or deacon or elder in the correction? Jurisdiction also implies that there's a level of relationship with the person you seek to correct. If you don't have a relationship with someone, the basis by which you have the authority to correct, why are you the one correcting them? I mean, if the first time you talk to a brother or sister is to correct them, <laughs> what legitimacy or foundation of trust is there for them to receive that correction? Like, I ain't never heard from you. You ain't never breathed a word to me before until you came to tell me, hey, man, that shirt is too tight. Like, what? Who are you? Do I know? Do you even know my middle name? <laughs> In other words, are you the appropriate party to give such correction? But of course, we also need to remind ourselves by the motives for which we give correction. Just judgment is given with godly motives. Why are you judging your neighbor? Why are you correcting a fellow church member? Is it because you love them and want them to be free from sin? Or is it because you're proud and like to feel superior to others? Just judges must judge with the right motive. And may I tell you that the safest motive for redeemed sinners like you and I is the love and mercy of God. And then finally, just judgment is given in the right manner. How you say something matters. We're not biobots, right? We're not merely exchanging ones and zeros when we speak to each other. The same exact string of words can be said fitly or unfitly. Proverbs tells us that a word fitly spoken is like fine jewelry. Paul says in Galatians 6 that if anyone is caught in trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watching over yourself even as he does so. Meaning there is such a thing as correct word spoken ungently and one that is spoken with gentleness. And this, friends, this requires wisdom. Because I'm, I'm not talking about sugarcoating everything. Because, lest you forget, Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He said they were full of rotting corpses. He, he called them snakes and devil's sons. His cousin, John the Baptist, also called them a brood of vipers. He called Herod many names, even in public. So much so that he was ultimately beheaded for it. Ezekiel and Hosea called Israel a whore. So... Best believe the Bible is replete with examples of stark, direct language that doesn't miss words or sugarcoats the truth. But the difference is that there is one voice for the sheep and another for wolves who are seeking to tear the sheep apart. In other words, you must know when to be firm and when to be soft. 
when to be tough and when to be tender, when to be quick to speak and when to hold your tongue. Brothers and sisters, this takes wisdom and charity and discernment and humility. But if you're always stuck on one mode, you are almost certainly, as Proverbs says, a fool. And fools give vent to their spirit and call it being prophetic. Just as much as fools never raise their voice and call it meekness. We need to have range, y'all. Because the world we live in requires it. And all of this matters. And matters deeply because the gospel, the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a pearl of great price. And just judgment is essential both in proclaiming this gospel and living it with joy. And so now let me... I know this was a hard word this morning. Let me leave you with this final exhortation as you apply this to your heart and mind and soul. If you don't remember anything else I've said, hear this. Love mercy with your whole soul. Love the mercy that lives at the heart of this gospel we keep telling you about. Be eager to share this treasure and judging with love and slow to anger and eager for repentance. Make it plain that you're a child of God who delights in mercy because you have received much of it. For indeed, as we've beheld over these past few weeks, mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks be to God for his mercy. Let us pray. Almighty God, our hearts are rended within us. We know that in many ways we have failed to obey this word. In our hearts we have judged others. With our words we have cut down friends. In our minds, we have rushed to judgment. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, O God, and have mercy on us. And Lord, in receiving this mercy, let us turn around and extend the same to our fellow man and woman. Let us look upon them with your eyes. For you, O Lord, you shine the sun and pour the rain down on both the righteous and the unrighteous, that you are abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Oh, that they would know us by our gentleness, by our love, and by our mercy. God, you haven't called us to be cultural critics. You've called us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and by so doing, Point them to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh God, help us. Help us in this. We have failed to live out the gospel. But Lord, we come again, knowing that you abound in mercy towards wretched sinners like us. Give us yet another chance and let us turn around and go and be light and salt 
and so that they might see our good works and our good words and glorify our Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.